Corrie ten Boom was a Dutch Christian who was nearly 50 years old when the Germans invaded the Netherlands in World War II. She lived with her father and sisters, and over the course of the occupation, their faith in Christ led them to care for and shelter many Jews from the Nazis. They took in their first Jewish refugee to hide in their home, and they actually retrofitted their home with a hiding place in early 1942. And over the course of nearly two years, they sheltered numerous Jews as well as members of the Dutch resistance. Their home came to be known as the hiding place. On February 28, 1944, the Nazis raided their house, and Corey and her family were arrested. The Jews who were hiding succeeded in hiding. They were not captured at that time. But she and her sister moved from prison to prison, ultimately winding up in the terrible Ravensbrück concentration camp. The story of Thanksgiving that I'm going to read in a second is from, is from Corey Ten Boom's book, which is also called The Hiding Place. And that is a picture of the women doing forced labor at Ravensbrück. She wrote, We lay back, struggling against the nausea that swept over us from the reeking straw. Suddenly I sat up, striking my head on the cross slats above. Something had pinched my leg. Fleas, I cried. Betsy, the place is swarming with them. We scrambled across the intervening platforms, heads low to avoid another bump, dropped down to the aisle and hedged our way to the patch of light. Here, and here, another one, I wailed. Betsy, how can we live in such a place? Show us. Show us how. It was said so matter-of-factly, it took me a second to realize that Betsy was praying. More and more, the distinction between prayer and the rest of life seemed to be vanishing for Betsy. Corey, she said excitedly, he's given us the answer before we asked, like he always does. In the Bible this morning, where was it? Read that part again. I glanced down the long, dim aisle to make sure there was no guard in sight, then drew the Bible from the pouch. It was in 1 Thessalonians, I said. We were on our third complete reading of the New Testament since we'd left Scheveningen. In the feeble light, I turned the pages. Here it is. Comfort the frightened. Help the weak. Be patient with everyone. See that none of you repays evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and for all. It seemed to be written for Ravensbrook. Go on, said Betsy. There, that wasn't all. Oh, yes. Rejoice always. Pray constantly. Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus. That's it, Corey. That's his answer. Give thanks in all circumstances. That's what we can do. We start right now to thank God for every single thing about this new barracks. I stared at her, then around me at the dark, foul-aired room. Such as, I said, Such as being assigned here together. I bit my lip. Oh, yes, Lord Jesus. Such as what you're holding in your hands. I looked down at the Bible. Yes, thank you, dear Lord, that there was no inspection when we entered in here. Thank you for all these women here in this room who will meet you in these pages. Yes, said Betsy. Thank you for the very crowding here. 
since we're packed so close that many more will hear. She looked at me expectantly. Corey, she prodded. Oh, all right. Thank you for the jammed, crammed, stuffed, packed, suffocating crowds. From what I read at that point, this barracks, which had been built for 400, was housing 1,400. Thank you, Betsy, went on serenely, for the fleas and for the fleas. This was too much. Betsy, there is no way even God can make me grateful for a flea. Give thanks in all circumstances, she quoted. It doesn't say in pleasant circumstances. Fleas are part of this place where God has put us. And so we stood between tiers of bunks and gave thanks for fleas. But this time I was sure Betsy was wrong. She continues to describe the forced labor conditions, 11-hour days, pushing heavy carts of steel plates out to rail yards with next to no food. And then we continue. Back at the barracks, we formed yet another line. Would there never be an end to columns and to weights to receive our ladle of turnip soup in the center room? Then as quickly as we could for the press of people, Betsy and I made our way to the rear of the dormitory room where we held our worship service. Around our platform area, there was not enough light to read the Bible. But in the back of the room, there was a small light bulb that cast a wan yellow circle on the wall. And here, an ever-larger group of women gathered. They were services like no other, these times in Barracks 28. At first, Betsy and I called the meetings with great timidity. But as night after night went by, and no guard ever came near us, we grew bolder. So many now wanted to join us that we held a second service after evening roll call. There in the Lagerstrasse, outside the barracks, we were under rigid surveillance, guards in their warm wool capes marching constantly up and down. And it was the same in the center room of the barracks, where half a dozen guards or camp police were always present. Yet in the large dormitory room, there was almost no supervision at all. We did not understand it. One evening, I got back to the barracks late from a wood-gathering foray outside the walls. A light snow lay on the ground, and it was hard to find the sticks and twigs with which a small stove could be kept burning in each room. Betsy was waiting for me, as always, so that we could wait through the food line together, and her eyes were twinkling. You're looking extraordinarily pleased with yourself, I told her. You know, we never understood why we had so much freedom in the big room, she said. Well, I found out. That afternoon, she said, there'd been confusion in her knitting group about the sock sizes, and they'd asked their supervisor to come and settle it. She wouldn't. She wouldn't step through the door, and neither would any of the guards. And you know why? Betsy could not keep the triumph from her voice. Because of the fleas. That's what she said. That place is crawling with fleas. And my mind rushed back to our first hour in this place. I remembered Betsy's bowed head, remembered her thanks to God for creatures I could not see a use for. That first Thessalonians passage that Corey is referencing, that Betsy references here, 
that the will of God for us is to give thanks in all circumstances. Is our focal passage for this short series of sermons as we prepare for Thanksgiving. Last week we talked about giving thanks in the good times. But today we turn our attention to the question of how it's even possible to give thanks in the bad times. How can we possibly give thanks when we're having problems in school or problems with friends? Our problems finding our place and our purpose in the world. How can we possibly give thanks when we're failing at work or we're on the wrong side of a nasty teacher or boss? How can we possibly give thanks when we receive that terrible diagnosis or are chronically ill and in pain and sick all the time? How can we possibly give thanks when our marriage is crumbling? or we can't find a job? How can we possibly give thanks after we've lost a friend or a sibling or a parent or a child or a spouse? Several of the New Testament writers have to address exactly these questions because there is so much terrible suffering and persecution going on in the church and they needed people to understand how God had equipped them to to survive and give thanks. And as they wrote to them, they wrote to all believers across the centuries. And so today we're going to try and answer these questions by looking at a passage from Paul's letter to the Romans. It's in chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. So turn with me if you would. I'll put it up on the screen and split onto two slides. Paul writes, Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance. And endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who's been given to us. As we read this passage, we need to understand that we're not being called to enjoy our suffering. We're not being called to pretend that we enjoy our suffering. We're not being called to smile and laugh and act as if nothing is wrong when all we want to do is scream or cry. And I don't think we should be feeling guilty or burdened when we are sad or angry in the midst of our suffering. But we are called to give thanks in the midst of that suffering and in the midst of that pain. To give thanks in all circumstances. Not to be thankful for them, but to be thankful in them. And Paul is clear that that's only possible because of faith in God through Jesus Christ. We can only be thankful in the face of terrible circumstances if we have something even greater to be thankful for. Without faith, everything else in this passage is impossible. It's only faith in God through Christ Jesus that lets us give thanks in the worst of circumstances because we can have 100% confidence 
that God loves us and is walking beside us in our difficulty and in our suffering. It's faith that assures us that he mourns when we mourn and is sad when we're sad. Remember what Jesus did when his friend Lazarus died? When Lazarus' sisters were so distraught? Jesus wept. He wept, even though he knew that he was going to raise him from the dead. He wept, even though he knew that Lazarus was going to be fine, that God was going to be glorified, that there was a greater purpose going on here. But he wept for his friends. And because of our faith, we know that he cares just as deeply for us in the middle of our suffering, because we are also his friends. Without faith, there's no point in giving thanks in the bad times. Because it's only by faith that we know that God empowers us and uses our suffering to reshape us to be more and more like Christ. A process that is a lifetime in the, in the making. These first two verses in chapter 5 continue the thoughts that Paul has been writing in chapter 4. And I would encourage you to always remember when you just start at the beginning of a chapter, read back a few verses to make sure you're not picking up in the middle of a thought. If your chapter begins with the word therefore, that's a guarantee you should read back a few verses to see what's going on. And that's exactly what we see today. We see the continuation of a thought from chapter 4. Romans 4 is all about faith. And in particular, it focuses on the faith of Abraham and what that faith means to us as believers. What the faith of a man thousands and thousands and thousands of years ago means to us today in the 21st century. Abraham is a model to us for steadfast faith. Because realize that from the time that God first spoke to Abraham, a man with no children, and said, your descendants will be a great nation, until the time that Isaac was born and the fulfillment began, is 25 years. 25 years is a long time for anybody, but for a 75-year-old man with no children, 25 years is a severe test of faith. But he did not waver in that faith. He grew stronger from it, from that test. See, Romans 4, verses 20 and 22, or 20 to 22, remember we stepped back a few verses to find out what the therefore is all about in today's passage. It says, No unbelief made him waver concerning the promise of God, but he grew strong in his faith as he gave glory to God. Fully convinced that God was able to do what had been promised. That is why his faith was counted to him as righteousness. His faith was counted as righteousness, as goodness, as holiness. It made him acceptable in the presence of God even though we know that Abraham made plenty of mistakes, just like we do. And the good news for us is that Paul continues in verses 20 through 25 to say that that righteousness is available to all of us through faith in Jesus Christ. He writes, But the words that was counted to him were not written for his sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in him who raised from the dead Jesus, 
our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. And that's the foundation for the passage we read today. That's the foundation for our ability to give thanks in the bad times. That we have been justified by faith in Jesus Christ. What does it mean to be justified? That's a word that's slipped a little in its meaning. Now I think we use it most of the time to rationalize ourselves, to rationalize why it's okay for us to do something wrong. We, we try and justify ourselves. But what they're talking about here, what Paul is talking about, is a legal term, meaning that we have been made acceptable to God. That we have been declared not guilty for the sins we have actually committed. Because the demands of God's perfect justice and his law have been completely fulfilled through the sacrifice and resurrection of Jesus Christ, the perfect Son of God. That there is no more condemnation for those of us who have faith in Christ. Not now, not tomorrow, not ever. And for that reason, Paul writes what he does in today's passage in verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand. And we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. We have peace with God. Where before we had anger, we had acting out, we had a disobedience and resentment towards his standards. Now we have peace with him where before he was angry with us, and righteously so, for our disobedience. Now we have access to grace, his love and forgiveness and mercy that we do not deserve, that we can never earn, but he gives it freely through faith. We should be thankful for this peace and for this grace, no matter the circumstances. This alone is reason to give thanks in all circumstances. But Paul's not going to stop there. And as we reflect on this, as we meditate on this, as we read about this grace in our daily Bible reading, it helps us to be thankful in all circumstances. Because we realize that as we've been talking about for so many weeks, as we've read in James, this life is a mist. This life, with all its pain and suffering, will someday fade away. And what is left is an eternity in the presence of God. That's the foundation for the rest of this passage. That's the building blocks upon which Paul builds. It's how and why we can rejoice in all circumstances and how we can rejoice in our sufferings, as he tells us to do in verse 3. So having set that foundation, I'd like to briefly look at the development of the three traits that he talks about. Endurance, character, and hope. Because he tells us very specifically in verses 3 through 5 that this is why we should be thankful and rejoice in our sufferings. The first of these is endurance. And this word can be translated as perseverance, patience, or steadfastness. 
It is communicating the idea of patient endurance and, and steady persistence in the face of opposition. It's not something that's ever going to feel good while it's happening. We know that exercise builds up physical endurance. A few years ago, much to my surprise, I took up running after a lifetime of never voluntarily doing it. And of course, the more I did it, the more I could do. It did build endurance, but but there was also a psychological element of it because not all runs are created equal. Some days you go out for a run and it's great and everything's working great and you feel awesome and you're hitting personal best and that's something that can inspire you for weeks and months to remember, well, I am capable of doing this and this is great. But those aren't necessarily the most valuable runs because some days you get out there and the victory is that you finished. You feel horrible. And every part of your body is screaming at you, dude, you don't do this. You don't run. And when you endure, when you finish, you have built up the understanding that you can do this. You've done it before. You can endure. And so just as physical exercise builds physical endurance, suffering builds spiritual endurance. James 1.3 affirms this, For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. Remember, steadfastness, endurance, same idea. By seeing what we are able to endure, we build a solid foundation of memories of how God worked with us in the crisis that we can look back on and draw strength from as we continue to endure. For example, as we draw near to God and endure problems in school, we build the strength that will help us later. It will help us in college. It will help us as we start getting involved in relationships. And as we endure problems in those situations, as we draw nearer to God, as we feel his presence working in our life, as we come to understand his word more deeply, we draw strength when we face marital struggles and physical illnesses, and the loss of loved ones. See, trial by trial, step by step, suffering builds our endurance. And it's not just a psychological effect, because Paul assures us in Galatians that patient endurance is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. So as we draw nearer to God, as as we see him at work in the storms, we can be assured he will supply us with steadfast endurance of the Spirit. James 1.12, which I noticed was the header on the hymn today, says, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood that test, he will receive the crown of life. So we're able to give thanks in the midst of our suffering because we know the Spirit uses us to give us endurance and strength for today and the promise of reward in eternity. And then Paul continues in verse 4 to tell us that endurance, as we learn to endure, as we grow in our strength, it produces character, which admittedly sounds a bit like talking to our parents sometimes when we're kids. 
Now, this word character isn't just about are you a nice person or not. This is what we often talk about with characters. We evaluate the, the character of our children's friends to decide whether they should be allowed to stay friends with them or not. It's much richer than that. This, this original word that underlies it has the concept of being tested and proven to be of good quality, to be acceptable to the maker or the manufacturer. And so when we see the word character here, we need to think about tested character, proven character. So endurance is what builds that up for us. It produces tested character in us. And when that happens, we don't have to wonder any longer how strong our faith is. We don't have to wonder, what would I do in a crisis? We don't have to wonder how deep our love for God is. We don't have to wonder how deep his love for us is. Because we know. We know that we can be at peace in the difficult times. Through endurance, we prove our character to ourselves and to God and to those around us. And so as we move forward in life, we have a boldness from this. We have a rock-solid certainty that through Christ, we can handle a tough situation that comes our way. And we can do it in a way that glorifies God. 1 Peter 1.7 tells us that this quality of tested character in our faith is more precious than gold. And that there will be honor and praise and glory when Christ returns. And then Paul concludes verse 4 by saying that this tested character, this proven quality about ourselves, produces hope. And hope is a word that has almost completely, in my opinion, lost its meaning in modern English. We've changed it. To me, at least in my generation, hope is talking about something that you desire it, but it's not very likely to happen. I can say very truthfully, I hope my fantasy football team beats Sean's this weekend, but it's not very likely to happen. The NFL.com gives it 41.8% chance, but I don't think it's that good. But that's not what biblical hope is. Biblical hope is confident expectancy. According to a Bible dictionary, genuine hope is not wishful thinking, but a firm assurance about things that are unseen and still in the future. Firm assurance. Confident expectancy. So what can we be confident about in the midst of bad times, in the midst of suffering. We can be confident in God's nature, that he is full of mercy and grace, that he is slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. We can be confident in Christ's sacrifice and the sufficiency of that sacrifice to cover our sin no matter how bad it is. We can be confident in the power of the Holy Spirit to work in our lives, to keep us comforted and on track and bearing the fruit of the Spirit. 
We can be confident in the certainty of eternal life through faith in Jesus Christ. Paul tells us that our hearts are filled, filled with God's love for us through the power of the Holy Spirit. How can we have that confidence? Because we've endured suffering and come to know God better through it. Because we've drawn near to God in times of crisis and proven our character to ourselves. Because we've experienced God at work in our lives in the worst situations and we've grown deeper in our love for Him and our understanding of His nature. Our tested and increasingly Christ-like character is what gives us hope. Assurance. As we know firsthand that God has filled our hearts with his love for us through the Spirit. Our hope, our firm assurance of God's love for us will never leave us, will never fail us, will never put us to shame. And for that, we can and should be thankful in all circumstances. So as we go out this week and we gather around tables of all different shapes and sizes to celebrate the Thanksgiving dinner, I would challenge you to not just put on a brave game face and pretend everything's okay if it isn't. To not just give thanks for the good things, though of course we should. But to take the time and reflect on these words from Paul and give thanks for what God is doing for you and in you and through you, even in the midst of difficult times. Let's pray. Father God, you are gracious and merciful. You are slow to anger and steadfast in love. Lord, we thank you and praise you for the sacrifice of your Son, Jesus, through whom we have faith, justification, grace. We thank you for your Holy Spirit, which seals us and guarantees us and empowers us and reshapes us to endure, to prove our character, and to give us hope, certainty of your love and grace and mercy. Lord, it's in Jesus' name that I pray. Amen. If God's been speaking to you this morning through his word, and it's calling you to give thanks for some circumstance, I invite you to do that now. And you can do it at your seat, but we've also got plenty of room up here. If you want to just lay the situation before the Lord and give thanks to him. If you haven't yet put your faith in Jesus Christ, I would encourage you to make that decision today because that's the key to being able to give thanks in all circumstances. Without faith, there is no ability to give thanks in the bad times. And if you've been attending here for a while and and you feel like this is where God's calling you to join, I'd invite you to come on forward. You'll be met up here.